Hello everyone and welcome back to The Longest Night, a Game of Thrones show in conjunction with our friends at the Narth subreddit. My name is Rob and I have seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. My name is Lizzie and I'm watching every single episode of Game of Thrones for the very first time. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, we are at Longest Night GOT, that is at Longest Night GOT, if you want to come and chat with us away from our episodes and drop us a line. Lizzie, how are we doing? How are we doing this week? Uh, yeah, very good. I think I'm very much looking forward to um, a long weekend off over Easter. Happy Easter, everybody, by the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think everybody's looking forward to uh, having those four days. Woo! Four-day weekend. Yeah. Um, it's, been a, it's been a long winter. We, we deserve this. Yeah, I feel like it's uh, felt extra long because we've been inside staring at so much of it. And Very much so. As the weather has marginally improved over the past couple of weeks, we've still just been staring at it. And yeah. hopefully better days are on the horizon, especially for those of us in the UK. Um, yeah, hope Everybody else can get out there soon as well. All right, then. Um, out of our universe and into another. This week, we are going to be discussing Season 3, Episode 2, of Game of Thrones entitled Dark Wings, Dark Words. It was written by Vanessa Taylor and directed by Daniel Minahan, and it was first broadcast on the 7th of April 2013 to an audience of 4.27 million wow. people. So posting those high figures, staying above the 4 million mark now, I don't think we go below that ever again. Um, what are your general thoughts about Dark Wings, Dark Words, Season 3, Episode 2? Yeah, it's a very good episode. Although, as we've discussed, it does very much feel like part two of the season three premiere. Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't think that's a criticism. It's something no, that... No, no. it's just uh, that is something that, I mean, in parts it is factual. Yeah. And we'll get to that in later bits of the episode. But yeah, I think that the pace is basically the same... Things pick up where you would expect them to. I think because there are so many storylines now that we checked in with the first half last week and we're checking in with the other half this week. And at the end of the episode, we're now in the position where we're off, really. I think the second half of the episode really ramps up. Um, There's a nice little group of cliffhangers and things to wonder about. Lots of big questions that we hope will be answered during the rest of the season. I, f- I feel like there's already about four or five cliffhangers we've got now. Yeah, it's if um, not more. Yeah, it's something the show really masters in. But I totally <laughs> agree that um, there are very, very few pairs of episodes in the show. Very, yeah. very few. One or two pairs, three or four pairs max, um, where I think you could give the episodes a part one and part two title if this was a, a syndicated um, show, like, uh, say, if um, it was something like Lost... You know, 20 episodes a season, um, yeah, you would probably yeah. get part one and part two out of um, a few episodes. But I think this is one of the few examples where I think you could justify calling it part one and part two of something, yeah. like last week yeah. and this week. But I, yeah, I think that something else you raised, um, that compared to the start of season two, the pacings just feel just much more comfortable. It's just ticking along really nicely. The start of season two feels a little slow and a little strange, but I think that we're nicely grounded and 
I think there's a lot of trust in the show at this point if you're a new yeah. viewer. And so, yeah. Uh, yeah, just a, a good a good outing generally, I think. They speak seven different languages in my army. The Fens hate the Hornfoots. The Hornfoots hate the Ice River clans. Everyone hates the cave people. So, you know how I got moon worshippers and cannibals and giants to march together in the same army? No. I told them we were all going to die if we don't get south. Okay, we'll start Beyond the Wall this week, uh, where Jon Snow is marching with the Free Folk. Mance Raider continues to be a little bit distrustful of Jon, but lets him know that the Wildlings are marching south to save their lives. There's no greater cause than that. Uh, John is then introduced to Oral, who's a, a wildling scout who can look through the eyes of animals. That's a, a warg. Uh, he reports that he has seen many dead crows uh, somewhere else beyond the wall. And elsewhere beyond the wall, the Night's Watch are marching back to Castle Black. And Sam is still upset that Ed and Gren left him behind in the season two finale when the White Walkers came. He collapses from exhaustion and all the other terrible emotions he's feeling and Lord Commander Mormon comes along and forbids him to die in order to stop <laughs> Rast from teasing him. that easy. Yes. Um, so what do we make of the stuff beyond the wall? We'll start with John. Yes. Well, we, um, we get another sighting of a famous British face in the scene. Yeah, um, we do. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Mackenzie Crook, who was famously in Sex Lives of the Potato Men, a film beloved by critics and viewers alike. Yeah, I have seen clips of that movie. Um, <laughs> it seems kind of weirdly disgusting. Yeah. And kind I'm, of I'm, vile. Yeah, I'm, I'm being facetious. It's another I know, UK I know. office alum. Yeah, of course, um, yeah. He played Gareth Keenan, who is the British equivalent of Dwight Schrute. I never saw the US office. Um, but You've not seen it? I've seen the UK one, but not the US. Oh, you have to watch it, Rob. It's so good. I think I would enjoy it. Um, I'm currently yeah. making my way through Parks and Recreation for the first time. Uh, so I'm catching up on these uh, <laughs> late noughties, early mockumentary uh, style comedies. Yeah, on- honestly, if you like Parks, you will love the US office. Yeah, but, I get um, the feeling it's I got digress. a similar vibe. Yeah. Um, when we see... Um, is it Oral or Aurel? Uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. But yeah, um, he has this kind of visions and his um, his eyes go sort of back into his head and then he's snapped out of it. Mance Raider asks Oral where he was, which is kind of, as, you know, a scene earlier in the episode is Osher asking Bran if he was, you know, inside the wolf again. Mm. And that got me thinking, hmm, is Bran a warg? And then, obviously, you know, later in the episode, Thomas Brody Sangster says, you're a warg. It's like, okay, fine. You just poo all over my theory and just... <laughs> Thanks for the exposition. Appreciate it. Well, um, the thing with that scene with John is that I did have a little bit of a chuckle where um, Mans Raider sort of says, have you ever met a warg before? And John goes, like, he doesn't really answer his question. I'm like, you have, you just don't know. <laughs> It's true, yeah. But yeah, we're starting in this Beyond the Wall stuff, we're now actually starting to get clues about other characters and mm. consequences for what um, consequences for other characters. I think, um, did you have any assumptions about what the Wildlings were doing beyond just trying to get south, or was that it? They're just, they're just trying to get south? 
Well, I mean, they're trying to get south, sure, but they're, they are their own fully formed community with, you know, rivalries and and allegiances. Hmm. So hmm, I'd, I've not really got any hints of what they're planning as such, other than, you know, as, as we know, getting south, otherwise they will die, which we did actually have kind of somewhat of a callback to when Joe Mormon, he kind of says to... Says to Rast, you know, if if you don't, what was it? If you don't get to the wall, then you know you will be you will be killed essentially. Yes, uh, everywhere north of the wall is now danger zone. So yeah. everyone's got to get. Everyone's coming south. It feels like we've picked up from where we were in season one, where things were kind of happening miles away beyond the wall, and things were coming south, like direwolves were coming south, and. Mm the wildling group that Osha was in were trying to get south, as far south as south goes. And it's just this worry about what might happen if you're stuck beyond the wall when the mm. time comes. And as we said in season one as well, where um, Sam said, you know, I hope the wall's high enough if the White Walkers wake up. So speaking of Sam, by the way, uh, do you have any comments about um, <laughs> his... Uh, well, lack of journey in this episode. I think he walks about 10 yards in this episode oh, yeah. after after running throughout the season finale and throughout the first episode. It feels like Sam is now slow to a stop and is being bullied about being slow to a stop. Yeah, possibly. I mean, he's already trudging through miles and miles and miles of snow and emptiness, but you've also got to bear in mind that he's had this traumatic incident with the you know the white walkers which the other men of the night's watch didn't really experience and you wonder if if they no. don't actually believe that it happened to him i know what you mean i mean what basically what happened at the first the first men is that the night's watch were attacked and so they were it's something that we skipped over basically but um mm. they were attacked by the white walkers that's all the dead crows yeah. that were mentioned. Um, but yes, the experience that Sam had was he didn't, he wasn't involved in the battle in the show, um, but he was, well, we saw him and mm. it feels like they've all kind of been through it and they're all scarred in different ways and some of them are holding it against Sam that he wasn't involved. Sam can't really... Sam can't really defend himself because he wasn't involved, but he also couldn't have made it to the top of the mountain. <laughs> no, how how could he have done? But I I do get what you mean though, in that they see him. Well, they assume him just hiding from them is like an act of cowardice instead of fighting yeah. them. But if you're on your own, I mean, the other two ran away. So, yes. you know who's who's the coward in that situation? Yeah, different acts of cowardice. Yeah, yeah gotta admit my one of my favorite lines of the episode is still that um i forbid you to die i think that's oh, um, brilliant great yeah. leadership from joe mormont there and handing over the responsibility <laughs> to uh rast <laughs> i'm jojen reed this is my sister mira we've come a long way to find you brandon and we have much farther to go Bran is dreaming of the Three-Eyed Raven, which has a name now. It is referred to as the Three-Eyed Raven, as well as Rob and John from mirroring that first scene in the mm. first episode. And then a mysterious boy who tells Bran that he will never be able to catch the Raven because 
he's the raven. And after he wakes up, they continue to head northwards to the wall. Uh, Then in a forest, they encounter that boy from the dream, as well as his sister. And after a bit of a tense standoff, uh, the boy and girl introduce themselves as Jojen and Mira Reed. And they explain that they have been searching for Bran and Rickon in order to find them and protect them. And then later, Jojen explains that Bran's dreams are a sign of a higher power and that their father, Howland Reed, uh, was a great friend of Ned Stark who went to war with him during Robert's Rebellion. So, um, first of all, easy note to make is that you can always tell when Bran's dreaming because he's walking. Yeah. I always like that dead giveaway. Yes, that is the kid from Love Actually. Yes, it is. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, I noticed you dropped his name in before. Uh, Were you surprised when he turned up? A little bit, yeah. Um, It's very unusual to not see him sprinting through an airport. Yeah. After 9-11. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think I'm I'm somewhat disappointed because I wrote up this whole theory about Bran's dreams and then it just came out towards the end that yep, you are um you're a warg and okay, that's that theory out the window with Well, what were your theories about his dreams? Well, my theory was, you know, because, as you mentioned, John and Rob repeat their lines from the pilot episode, you know, like, um, mm-hmm. what was it, sort of hold your gaze. And and then, so we see Bran practising his bow and arrow in that first scene, and he's obviously got it here as well. Um, and then we get the line from Ned, which is like, and, and which one of you was a marksman at 10? Yes. Which is sort of heard echoing through the trees. Um, I wondered if the raven was symbolic of Bran's own feelings about the expectations he feels he has to live up to. Like okay. it's always just it's always just out of reach, mm-hmm. you know. And he's trying he's trying to decipher it in all these different ways, but ultimately he can he can never figure it out because it's much bigger than somebody can figure out at that age. I think that's just as true as the reality, really. The reality is that he's, you know, uh, he has abilities that he can't control, like real yeah. abilities that he can't control. But I think it also is, it also can be seen symbolically as him not being able to, worry, he's worrying about not being able to live up to his potential and mm. not being able to, because it, it there's this idea that, you know, the, it's something that Jojen says where the raven is you, but we don't know what that actually means. You no. could take that literally and say that Bran is the raven in his dreams, but you could also say that the raven is his insecurities and that he won't be able to catch up with his insecurities and it's his hopes and dreams and he won't be able to catch up with those either. And it's all these intangible emotions that we have when you're in the position that Bran is in where you are not next in line because um, he's not the oldest son of Ned no. Stark, but he does have a certain responsibility. And it's some, it's a position he was thrust in, really, um, when he was, well, Lord of Winterfell for a little while and he was being helped by Maester Lewin. And even before that, you know, going back to that very first scene, he's trying to prove himself to, to his brothers and obviously Ned and Catelyn as well. Mm. And then, you know, towards the end of the episode, we know that he gets pushed out of a window and breaks his legs. And then, yeah, it's, it's going back to that. It's like, 
you can't, you're sort of chasing something that you can never reach because you can't ever reach that potential. Yeah. It's like an unattainable level. All right. I love this. Um, yeah, no, I really love it. Um, I just want to ask because they're new characters, what do you make of Jojen and Mira? They're interesting. Um, admittedly, I don't have much on them because I, in this episode, there's a lot of new characters and it's really difficult to kind of place them in the universe at first. Yeah. Apart from like one, you know, one example where it's kind of the exception to that. We'll come to it later. But mm-hmm. yeah, I I struggle to get anything down for them. It is slightly odd that he kind of shows up in his dream, though, which suggests some kind of psychic ability between them two. I don't know. Yeah, some kind of connection, you think? Yeah, yeah. Um, what I will say, just as a bit of background, Jojen and Mira Reed are, as I mentioned before, the children of Howland Reed. Uh, the Reed family are... I'm not sure if they're bannermen to the Starks, but they mm. have loyalties. They're another northern house. Um, they're a bit. They're from slightly further down um, Westeros. Uh, they're sort of towards the middle. They have mostly... Well, they've stayed out of it so far, and... They're not um, not a very powerful house, but um, they're a big deal to the Starks in the past. As I said, okay. Hal and Reed went off to war with Ned join, and Robert joined Robert's Rebellion. And so there's a, um, a family connection there, if you will. They're like family friends. I think that's probably mm-hmm. the best way to describe it. But Jojen uh, is a little intimidating for someone who's just a family friend. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> Tell us the truth. About what? I don't know what you want! I want the truth. What truth? Why'd you take Winterfell? I took it to... I took you it... gave the orders? No one. I took it on my own. Why? To take the north while it was vulnerable. What were you going to do once you took it? Hold it. Rule it. Good. Right, so for the first time in the show, we're going to go to an unknown location. Ooh. Uh, where Theon Greyjoy is chained up in a cellar by men who repeatedly ask him why he invaded Winterfell, and regardless of what answer he seems to give, they just carry on torturing him over and over and over, but they don't really reveal why. Um, and then later, uh, a boy with a, a broom approaches Theon and says that he's friends with Yara and that Yara's sent him to rescue Theon and that he will free Theon uh, well, he says later that night, but we know it's just next episode. So um, uh, I don't really know how to approach this because I feel like I need to put on a really good uh, poker face because obviously I know all the answers about this because I've seen it all before. Um, yeah. But I want to know, first of all, what, just who do you think, where, where do you think Theon is? Like, do you have any guesses about where he might be? I wonder if he's kind of, either in the ruins of Winterfell or just outside Winterfell, because obviously we know that Roose Bolton's bastards men went to that sort of area, and and obviously that was the last time we saw Theon mm-hmm. before he got knocked out by Dagmar. Um, where exactly? I, I, can't, I can't guess. Okay, that's, I think that's a good place to leave it, because I think that's where the show wants you to be. Mm. It doesn't want you to know where he is yet. Um... It's really funny because he goes, where am I? And I'm like, yep, same question, Theon. Um, <laughs> I would the I, I, I would try not to give anything away about future episodes because I always want to keep you really spoiler-free. But before I do, 
How were you with the torture scenes in this episode? Um, I will say I, I saw the opening and Vanessa Taylor's name came up and I was like, oh no. <laughs> you know, because she did Garden of Bones as well. And that was yeah. the episode which made me queasy. Um, I I expected it. It's maybe, it's probably one of the grimmer things we've seen on the show so far. It's like, I don't, I don't know if we've seen torture at this point in the show. No, we've seen little bits of it at Harrenhal with the rat in the bucket, but it's not oh, yeah, been yeah. like prolonged yeah, that was exposure. Garden of Bones, right? That was Garden of Bones, yes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah uh, she has form. Yeah, she's good at coming up with torture techniques. Um, I was actually, uh, I was actually googling the foot press earlier today um, and what oh, that actually does. And yeah. oh my god, medieval punishments and torture were horrible. Um, but yeah, I would just kind of brace yourself a little bit. Um, things get grim with the torture scenes. Um, okay. More grim, even when Vanessa okay. Taylor's not around. Um, that's the only thing I'll probably prepare you for. Um, sure. Because it is something that I think that you do need to give people advance warning about. Mm. Um, because obviously, you know, the show is graphic, but there's an element of misery to torture scenes that I think goes beyond normal blood and guts. Do you mean misery, the emotion or misery, the film? Uh, well, I, I do, well, <laughs> I, I do, I do mean the emotion where I feel like it's, it can feel a little bit like you're being bombarded with just bleakness and ne- negativity. Yeah. And it can be quite hard to bear. A lot of the images can get quite grisly and a lot of the incidents, um, whether they're implied or depicted are, really they, they can be quite hard for people so i think it's worth just mentioning in advance that you may have mm. to prepare yourself a little bit for them i did have a theory about who the person was who comes to theon's aid i don't really have anything to back it up oh okay who do you think it might be well i wondered if he was someone previously or currently in rob stark's army who was possibly associated with torren Karstark, who was killed by jamie in a man without honor Mm-hmm. who is maybe disillusioned with Rob's leadership and or seeking revenge for Jamie being freed. Because, of, you know, later in the episode, you see Lord Karstark and Rob having that disagreement in the Riverlands. Yes. You know, going so far as to claim that Rob lost the war when he married Talisa. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if he's, you know, maybe someone on, on the Karstark side who's trying to free Theon as revenge for Catelyn freeing Jamie. Okay, I love these. I love these theories. These are excellent. Um, but again, I have nothing to back this up. It's that's just, cool. No, I think, to be honest, uh, I think you've got plenty to back it up. I think you've used textual evidence there to support your theories. Hmm. Um, which, yeah, I know, I'm, I'm going to keep stum, but I like that theory a lot. I imagine it must be so exciting to squeeze your finger here and watch something die over there. Could you do it? Could you kill something? I don't know, Your Grace. Do you think I could? Yes. Would you like to watch me? In King's Landing, Joffrey is being fitted for new clothes when Cersei Mm -hmm. attempts to criticise Marjorie, but Joffrey refuses to listen to her. 
Solaris escorts Sansa to Marjorie, who introduces her grandmother, Lady Olena, played by Diana Rigg, and together they convince Sansa to tell the truth about Joffrey, that he is a monster. But Olena and Marjorie don't seem deterred, they just kind of see it as a, a more difficult project now. Um, elsewhere, Shay alerts Sansa to the possibility that Littlefinger could be in love with her, and she says that she'll keep a close eye on him for her. When Shay visits Tyrion to ask if he can aid in protecting Sansa, they have a bit of a tense discussion about Tyrion's history with uh, Ross. And then later, Marjorie visits Joffrey in his chambers, and she manages to get a handle on him, like, almost immediately after he starts to question her about her loyalty to previous loyalty to Renly. Uh, she answers every question perfectly, and by the end of the mm. scene, Joffrey has agreed to take her on a hunt. No idea how she yep. managed it. Um, <laughs> but this is King's Landing this week. So what have we got for stuff in the capital? Oh, God, there's a lot this week in King's Landing, isn't there? So much. Yeah. I mean, wh where would you like to start? Well, I would like to start with the fact that without them being on screen together, there's so much anger brewing between Cersei and Marjorie from a distance. Oh, there is, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, they've been on screen in the first episode, but not in this one, and yet Cersei's just seething every single time Marjorie gets mentioned. Yeah, it's one of those cases of the worst person you know just made a great point. It's like, she she mm. can see right through Marjorie, but also it's like, it's not like you're any better. <laughs> no. And I think we know who we'd prefer, because I think that as much as Marjorie's playing a game, at least it's with better intentions than Cersei, you would think. Yeah, and it's like she's accusing Marjorie of manipulating or trying to manipulate Joffrey, but it's like, what are you doing then? Yeah. Is it any different? Exactly. Um, I think that's it, that Cersei is very much aware that the, the, the claws that she has in Joffrey are slowly being wedged out by Marjorie as Marjorie mm. gets her claws into Joffrey and it's like they're kind of fighting over him without Joffrey really knowing and it's funny to see Joffrey with so I wouldn't say little agency but you know what I mean it's like he's being played but he doesn't know it yeah yeah and it's strange to see him in this way because he's usually so vicious and so aware of so much going on around him that he feels kind of as we were saying in uh, the Blackwater episode he feels kind of inevitable and just always inevitably horrible and inescapable and so vicious and mean. And now it feels like Marjorie is much better at wrapping him around her finger. Oh yeah, she does. She does it with ease. It's like like it's nothing. But he is just a young, a young man. What is he like? Fourteen. Yeah, fourteen, fifteen years old. Yeah. I think that the scene with the crossbow is probably my favourite of the episode. I think that it is just the way that it's written and the way that Marjorie is able to spin that conversation around in her favour and she has to face very difficult questions about Renly and by extension Loras and yet there's and there's some great lines in there as well like um, I imagine I must feel to squeeze something over here and watch something die over there yeah, and yeah. The just her skill with Joffrey is so amazing to watch, and Natalie Dormer and Jack Gleason have got really good chemistry in that kind of dynamic together. Yeah. Um, the shot of the bolt going through the hogs, like the boar's eyes, mm. um, 
And yeah, everything. I just love the interplay between the, between Jack Gleason and Natalie Dormer, and how it's how the scene slowly turns around so that Marjorie's in a quite a powerful position from being yeah. in one of she was being inquired upon, and by the end of it, it's like she's totally in Joffrey's good books, and there's no doubts left. Yeah, she's literally the one holding the trigger by the end. Yes, exactly. It's super, super stuff. Really, is super stuff. Um. And I think that she learned a lot of her no flies on her no bullshit kind of stuff mm. from yeah. Lady Olena, who oh, is yeah. introduced yeah. into the show. Um, first appearance for Lady Olena. What do we make of Diana Rigg, Lady Olena? Um, seeing Lady Olena in this episode made me realise that this show is very short on older characters, and particularly older women. Okay. I know that's a strange thing to observe, but... I don't, I can't recall any other elderly women that we've had in the show since the woman telling Bran a story, you know, the pale spiders big as hounds. And that was, what, season one, episode four, maybe? Yeah, very early on. Um, My explanation for that, obviously, is that in the world of the books, mm. um, this is where, you know, where it's mostly derived from all of the, I can't think of, there are in future episodes characters that are original to the show but they are very few and far between and i don't think we've had any yet Mm. that are major characters anyway um so they're derived from the books but i think the deal with that is that i'm trying to think of old women that could have been in the show and are probably they probably died in childbirth like i'm thinking tywin's wife Tyrion's mother she was killed in childbirth of course, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that... I imagine Theon's mother was probably killed early on. Uh, well, I mean, would you want to hang around being married to Balon Greyjoy anyway? Um, oh, God, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I think that's probably where it comes in. But you are yeah. right that there is a lack of elderly... Ca- I mean, characters tend not to get very old in this show. Um, but you are right to mention that it's something that I've not thought about before. I, I mean, I had, I also hadn't considered that. I suppose particularly poor, poorer women might have died in childbirth, and then someone like Lady Olena, who seems more privileged, maybe you know had had the opportunity to have access to, let's say, better healthcare. Maybe I don't know. It's a fictional universe, but. Um, you know, beside that, yeah, she's a, she's a great character. You can sense that she knows, particularly Marjorie inside out, and that she knows what's, maybe not what's best for her, but what would get her the furthest. She knows every inch of the game that is being played. Yeah, she 100%. knows it. She's above it. She can see it. Like, it's... Yeah, I she's mean, played it. She's won it. You know. Exactly. And all of the bullshit about the world and all of the pomp and all yep. of the, just the, yeah, like you said, the games and the fronts that people put on and just like even lines like, um, Loris is, um, very good at knocking men off horses with a stick that doesn't make him wise. <laughs> and they, it's grandmother, true. what will Sansa think of us? Oh, she thinks she'll have, she'll think we'll have some wits about us. Um, there's a little joke in there about Sansa's favorite food in the books, which is lemon cakes. Oh yeah, um, yeah. So we've been told about Santa's favorite. <laughs> yeah, um, you know how like with Breaking Bad, there were all yeah. those memes about Walt Junior and breakfast. 
But oh, yeah, Walt yeah, Jr. Yeah. loved breakfast. And it's kind of like <laughs> that with Sansa and lemon cakes in the Song of Ice and Fire world. Um, Sansa loves lemon cakes. Um, but yeah, she is a super character. Really, really super character. Um, I thought it was particularly interesting in the scenes with Olena and Marjorie to see Sansa finally let her guard down after like a season of keeping it up. Well, she, only just. You know, she's really trying, but I think... She senses that she's not going to get one past Lady Alina. No, and I think that when she tries to maintain it, and then you can... I think there's that line where Marjorie says, um, oh my God, she's really frightened, isn't she? This is what we're dealing with with Joffrey. Mm. And I... Yeah, no, I just love it. I think after watching Sansa try to play court and try to play the game for 10, 11 episodes, it's just nice to know that she's in the company of people that she can trust a little bit. Even if it's yeah. for the Tyrells' benefit, it's just nice to know that the Tyrells won't go tattling about her and won't go telling tales because they are in this for themselves. They're not For the first time, Sansa has encountered someone in King's Landing who's not in it for the Lannisters. <laughs> yeah, and so, who, who yeah. isn't a Lannister. Exactly. Um also, I don't know if you noticed, by the way, um, in the background of this episode, um, that Tyrion has moved chambers. Oh, yeah. He, um, after that argument that he had with Tywin last week, he has at least been given better quarters as for recognition of uh, what he did in the Battle of Blackwater. Yeah, because he had that very small room, which um, Maester Pycelle joked about, and then... Um... What was it? Cersei borrowed it, and she said, oh, "And Tyrion said something along the lines of, oh, it must be great to borrow quips from someone whose balls hang below their knees.'" Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I was wondering because it did look a lot brighter and um, more scenic, even. Yes, uh, a bit more sun getting into that into that place. Yeah, less like a prison cell. Put the sword down, girl. You go on down the road. Just keep on singing so we know where you are. Leave us be, and I won't kill you. Generous. You're a dangerous person. I like dangerous people. Why are your friends so shy? In the Riverlands, having successfully fled Harrenhal, Arya, Hot Pie, and Gendry encounter the Brotherhood Without Banners, who were mentioned mm. last season, and their leader, Thoros of Mir. They briefly join them, and they're taken for food at the end of the crossroads, which is where Tyrion was arrested in season one. Um, while there, the Hound is brought in as a prisoner of the Brotherhood, having been captured after fleeing King's Landing at the end of last season. Uh, as Arya tries to get out of there without being seen, the Hound recognises her and exposes her identity to Thoros and the rest of the Brotherhood. So we finally met, finally met the Brotherhood without banners after all those mentions last season. So the Brotherhood were basically were leading a small force against Lannister soldiers in the field, which is why they were the they were a subject of interest during the torture sessions at Harren Hall. Last season. Now we've met the Brotherhood. What do you get? What what vibe do you get from them? So they're like a sort of rebel alliance. Uh, pretty much, yeah. They just kind of go from here to there, protecting the countryside. No banners. They're kind of okay. like, you know, the house that you can choose for yourself. 
Yeah, I'm not sure I'm on board with them yet, because particularly Thoros of Mir seems like a bit of a prick. Okay, yeah, tell me more. I don't know, he's just sort of brash, and, and like, you know, towards the end, he, he pulls a sword on Arya, it's like, fucking hell, man, just... I know you're drunk and everything, but come on. She's a child. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, like way before that, going back to the start, um, Gendry says something to Arya about, she, you know, you could have killed Tywin Lannister, you could have killed Joffrey, you could have ended the war. But she did also get the entirety of the Harrenhal guard killed, despite only being offered three kills. Seems yeah, like that's true. The hangings that followed, you're right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I wouldn't be complaining. Well, I think it's a joke, isn't it? About mm. I think it's kind of like a fan acknowledgement because the fans would be asking, why has she not gone for Tywin? Why has she not gone for Joffrey? Why did she not name more important people? And Arya's basic explanation is like, I'm a kid, I was panicking, I was at a prison, what would you have done? And yeah, I think that's yeah. perfectly just. <laughs> Oh, yeah, definitely. It's like, well, the other question is, why did you get 20 instead of three? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. She she may not have intended for it to end up that way, but she's put it in a position and it's ended up in a position where she got more men killed than were actually she was allowed. And so, of yeah, she did a, a decent favour, I think. Absolutely. Um, this is what I wanted to mention. This is the factual part of it being basically a premiere part two, which is that the early scenes in this episode with Arya and the Brotherhood before they get to the inn at the crossroads, um, they were actually intended to be in episode one, but All they right. were moved because they ran out of space in the premiere. So this means that you get more Arya content in this episode. And I think, to be honest, I think the pacing works just fine. I think going a week without seeing Aya last week was totally fine. Um, these scenes really yeah, work. Yeah. Um, and we get, it's nice to just drop in with Hot Pie, Gendry and Aya every now and again, and we get more of them in this mm. episode. Um, what did you make of it when um, Aya was identified by the Hound? A lot of people getting captured in that pub and identified in that pub. I just feel like it's a place where things like that happen. Oh, yeah, it's, it's the same pub from season one, right? Yeah, where Tyrion was arrested. Yeah, yeah. Presumably, the Hound has fled King's Landing. Yes, he left King's Landing after the Battle of Blackwater. He's been wandering about the Riverlands, just north of King's Landing, and he's been captured. So that suggests that Sansa must have either said no or said nothing to his offer to get her out of there. Yeah, she was, um, she was basically, she didn't want to stay, but she felt like she had to. Same as uh, in episode 10 of season two, but then in season three, episode one, um, she was given the chance and she accepted this time because obviously she's no longer betrothed to Joffrey. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. So yeah, the Hound was on the road by himself and he's been he's been captured this time by the Brotherhood Without Banners who were... Well, they have him as a prisoner because there's a, there's a little bit of history with um, the Brotherhood Without Banners and the Clegane family, which we'll learn a bit more about okay. in uh, the next few episodes, I think. Right, so that's not something I'm supposed to know at the minute. Uh, no, no. I think I'm pretty sure it comes up in the show. If it doesn't, I'm happy to fill you in in like three or four episodes' time. Like, no, because you know, I... Yeah. I mean, I maybe assume that he, well, he and the rest of the Brotherhood were maybe defectors from, you know, King's Landing, but mm -hmm. 
yeah, it's 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 another one of these new character things that's impossible to know straight away. Yeah, we'll need a bit more time with them first. Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't keep my promise. And everything that's happened since then, all this horror that's come to my family, it's all because I couldn't love a motherless child. Um, at Harren Hall, where I, uh, Gendry, and Hotpie escaped from not long ago, uh, Rob and Catelyn received bad news from two separate places, hence the Dark Wings, Dark Words, because the title explains um, how people feel about ravens in the Westerosi world, where ravens have dark wings and they bring bad news, so Dark Words. First uh, is that Hosta Tully, Catelyn's father, has passed away, and second, that Winterfell was destroyed during the battle between the Greyjoys and the Boltons, and that Bran and Rickon have not been seen and have not been found. On the road to Riverrun for the funeral uh, for Hosta Tully, uh, Lord Karstark claims that Rob's chances have been weakened in the war and that his marriage to Talisa may have cost him the war. Uh, Talisa sits down with Catelyn after that, who's making a prayer wheel for Bran and Rickon's safety, and she explains that she last made one when Jon Snow nearly died as a baby but even though he got better and the prayer wheel at least in her eyes it worked um she still couldn't bring herself to love him hosta tully is the first person in game of thrones so i think of die of natural causes um <laughs> instead of being killed <laughs> so fair play to him there um yeah, yeah. sensing a bit of discontent in the ranks with rob and lord karstark definitely lost this war the day you married her and um, one of my, another real favourite scene from the episode is Catelyn's um, really gorgeous monologue from mm. Michelle Fairley about uh, Jon Snow's uh, history with Jon. So, yeah, what, what's your notes from Harren Hall slash Road to River Run this week? Well, even before all this, there's a line from Jamie where um, Brienne and Jamie are uh, kind of walking through um, the woodlands and then... There's a pertinent line from Jamie after he goads Brienne about Renly's relationship with Loras Tyrell. He says, we don't get to choose who we love. And that's that's true of several characters in the show. You know, Talisa and Rob, Shay and Tyrion, maybe Sansa all come to mind. But especially so Catelyn Stark, who promised to love Jon Snow if he survived the pox, but ultimately could not keep that promise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just I thought that was a, an interesting little constant throughout this episode. Oh, nice that you've picked up on a thread. That's nice. Yeah. I love it when I love it when you can pick up on a thread that goes through the whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think that um, as far as I can remember, this monologue and this part of Catelyn's backstory is a show introduction. Mm. Um. And but I think it adds a lot to her relationship with John and the her, even her relationship with Ned. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, yeah. I think its placement is kind of deliberate as well. Where um, we're in the middle of, well, obviously we know that Bran and Rickon are still alive, but obviously she has no idea, and so she's worrying about all of her children. And like I was saying about. 
it's something that Brienne mentions in season two where she says that Catelyn has a, a woman's courage, like a mother's courage. And I feel like all of that flows through Michelle Fairley every time she steps on screen. And yeah, this is one of those moments again where she just embodies the role of Stark mother so well. And Talisa trying to bond with her mother-in-law initially, it's, uh, oh, can I help you with that? No. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this is it, yeah. But she is starting to open up to Talisa if she's giving her these kinds of monologues and she's maybe analysing where things have gone wrong in the past. I mean, I think it's a bit unfair of her to blame all of it on herself. It's not all her fault at all, nothing like. But she is beginning to recognise maybe what she feels is a little bit too late, that if things had gone differently in the past, then maybe things would be different now. Yeah, for sure. And I, th- I think, obviously, being imprisoned by your own son would likely bring out those feelings in a more intense way. Yeah, I think Rob's been kind enough to let her go um, and leave her, and no longer have her in handcuffs anymore. Well, not handcuffs, but chains. I don't think handcuffs yeah. have been invented by then. But... Um, <laughs> What do you make of the stuff with Lord Karstark accusing Rob of basically messing his chances up for this war by marrying Talisa? Obviously now Talisa, him and Rob getting married is now an open secret and everybody yeah. knows. Um, what do you make of that scene in particular? Do you think Lord Karstark is right? In a way, not entirely. I don't think it's it's all that, but I wonder if he sees that as Rob letting his guard down and, you know, obviously their meeting being the catalyst for letting Jamie escape or something to that effect and, you know, the death of Torrin Karstark. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, partially, but not entirely. And I'd, are they necessarily losing the war? I thought they were doing quite well. Yeah, they're winning a lot of battles. Um, but it, I suppose the worry for Rob is that at the moment there is just that little bit of annoyance in the ranks. I think ever since Jamie was, well, basically ever since Jamie killed um, Torrin Karstark, things haven't been happy. Um, yeah. I suppose yeah. this is Rob's mission this season to kind of repair things. And maybe he started that now with um, Catelyn being freed. Because it also, it seemed like it was for show Mm. that she was imprisoned and, you know, maybe starting to soften on that a little bit and, but who knows, you know, maybe while, maybe when he's a river run, which we will see uh, next week, we will get to river run next week um, for the, uh, for the funeral of Hosta Tully. Mm. Um, Maybe he can find some friends there (laughs) with his mother's old family. Yeah, I mean, as much as it doesn't seem like they're literally losing the war, um, I suppose it does make sense that Lord Karstark considers it a loss because he lost his son. He was, you know, he was murdered by the man who was supposed to be imprisoned. Yeah, there are a lot of people beneath Rob in the hierarchy who have given up an awful lot. Yeah, yeah. For this, and yeah, it's something that I know he's mindful of. It's a tough decision. Take the bridge and risk being seen across the Great Water. Silence, Kingslayer. Now, anyone could see us on the bridge, but across by water, and the current could take us, or I could escape down the river. Good luck. It's wonderful to watch you wrestle with these dilemmas. Which will she choose? 
Okay, um, final destination for this week. I've called it Riverlands 2. <laughs> Not far away, uh, Jamie and Brienne are traveling cross-country when they encounter a lone farmer with a horse. Um, they briefly consider killing him in order to you know, protect their identities, but they decide against it. And later on, Jamie tries to free himself by fighting with Brienne, but she beats him very easily. But their fight takes place on a bridge and it leaves them exposed to the men that Ruth Bolton has sent after the Kingslayer. And they capture Jamie and Brienne, having been tipped off by the farmer that they met before and didn't kill. Um, mm. What do we make of the Brienne and Jamie stuff? It's where we leave the episode this week. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting little role reversal, the farm stuff. Because you expect, well, well as always, it's um, Brienne being the sensible one and Jamie kind of saying, no, no, you should kill him. But And I think the expectation would that is that, you know, uh, Brienne would be right all along. And yes, he is an innocent, but you get to the end of the episode and obviously it it quickly becomes apparent that, yeah, maybe you should have killed him. <laughs> there's, um, there's only so far your morals can take you. Well, I think the point that this episode makes is that the road is not safe. I think that no matter who you carry, uh, who you come across, if you're carrying valuable cargo who is recognisable, then you're going to be in for it at one stage or another. If you're travelling for hundreds of miles by foot, you're mm. going to get seen, especially if you're only in a group of two or three. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely, you know, if you're in a position where you're kind of... get Like you say, if there's only two of you, then surely there's going to be a reason for that. You're not just going to be around there for the sake of it no um precisely and i think that the farmer also he just wanted some silver i don't think he's a bad person i think he was just poor and he saw a way to make some money yeah no i don't you know i agree completely yeah because we don't like we're following jamie and brienne and we don't want them to be captured but that farmer doesn't know them he has a vague idea but if he sees a bunch of men looking for the kingslayer he's gonna be like yeah i saw him there it is to say I see him. Um, but yeah, I think that Jamie makes a pretty stupid decision to try and fight Brienne. Um, but it's worth it just to see Brienne beat him into the floor. Oh, yeah, it's magnificent, isn't it? Well, there's that line from the end of season two, isn't there, where all my life men like you have been trying to beat me and all my life I've been knocking men like you into the dust and Jamie's another <laughs> man, man like Jamie getting knocked into the dust. <laughs> Yep, but well, they're they're kind of both in the shit now. Because like, how do you how do you escape that? There's no way out of that situation they're in. Yeah, what do you think happens from here? I couldn't possibly tell you. I mean, I'm sure they're going to be escorted to some sort of holding place. But yeah, because how how do you fight off men with horses when there's only two of you? Well, exactly. You don't. <laughs> no, you don't. But of course, we've we've seen Jamie get out of these situations before. Yes. And so you you do wonder maybe you know maybe he's got that cunning in him again, and he might even put his differences aside with Brienne to get them out of there. Mm, we'll see. That's the we cliffhanger, will. I guess. <laughs> yeah, one of many. All right then. Now that is that brings us to the end of uh, today's play. So yeah, just a reminder: 
that in about uh, about just under just over three weeks' time, uh, we've got our interview with Miltos Yerolemu, who was uh, Sirio Varel in season one. And if, after that, a little reminder: I want to ask you, Lizzie, for your loser this week. Who's your loser? My loser of the week is actually kind of a difficult one because there's nobody. I'd say there's nobody really truly heinous in this one. I don't know if you'd agree with that. No, I think that's right. I think that's true. So it's going to be slightly trivial, but it's um, Thoros of Mir. Okay. Yeah. Um, A new and unfamiliar face. Well, yeah, and I might be proven wrong. Maybe he's, he's he really is one of the good guys, but yeah, I didn't like him in this one. He seemed, like I say, he seemed like a bit of a, a prick. All right, then. And who's your winner this week? My winner of the week is going to be Lady Olina. Yay. All right, then. Yeah. yeah, I had a feeling when she turned up that you might name her. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's uh, so a good representation for the Tyrells so far this season. Marjorie um, in week one was your winner. Mm-hmm. And now week two, you got her grandmother, Lady Olena. It, qu- it quite easily could have been Marjorie again. But, you know, Lady Olena was special in this one. All right, then. So next week, we're going to be back for season three, episode three, which is entitled Walk of Punishment. Um, Yeah, it's just another nice little knock on for season three. Just a nice little, nice little step along the road. Mm -hmm. See you for that. 